Welcome to the Public Morality. On the night of August 16, 1915, a group of armed white men kidnapped Leo Frank, a Jewish American, who had been convicted for the murder of 13-year-old Mary Fagan from the prison hospital in Midgetville, Georgia, and drove 175 miles to Marietta. The next morning, Frank was unceremoniously lynched, thus putting an end to an episode that had received national attention. The case of Leo Frank combined racism, anti-Semitism, class differences, mob violence, political courage, and cowardice. It is a case that remains with many, particularly in the Atlanta area today. I found myself thinking about the Frank case as Marietta ironically became part of a coalition that recently sent a Jewish American, John Ossoff, to the United States Senate. To discuss the case of Leo Frank, I'm joined by writer Steve Oney. Oney is the author of numerous books, including And the Dead Shall Rise, The Murder of Mary Fagan, and The Lynching of Leo Frank. Steve Oney, welcome to The Public Morality. Thank you, Byron. We're going to explore many of the specifics of this case, but I'd like to begin by having you provide a Reader's Digest version of Leo Frank, Mary Fagan, and why this story still resonates 105 years later, especially uh, in the Atlanta metro area. Leo Frank was an Ivy League-educated Jewish industrial engineer who was lynched just outside Atlanta in 1915. And from that lynching grew both the reborn Ku Klux Klan, which held its first cross-burning shortly after the lynching, and the Anti-Defamation League, which had been founded shortly before the lynching but was galvanized by the crime. So it's really a ground zero for some of the polarizing forces that are still alive in American society. But to understand why that's so, you've got to go back a little bit. In 1913, two years before the lynching, Leo Frank was convicted of murdering a young girl who worked in the factory he managed. The girl's name was Mary Fagan. And it was a brutal crime and mysterious and difficult to figure out and has become even more difficult over the years. But Frank was the last person to admit having seen this young girl alive. He was arrested, he was prosecuted, and he was convicted. And the trial was extraordinarily intense because the main witness against him was a black guy, his alleged accomplice, Jim Conley, who was a janitor at the factory. And it was one of the first times in the South that an all-white jury accepted a black man's testimony in a capital case. The conviction was upheld all the way to the United States Supreme Court. During that time, however, many people began to question the trial, and the case became a cause celeb. There were a lot of loose ends, a lot of improbables. People started to feel that Jim Conley, the key witness, was the murderer and that Leo Frank had been framed. And all the issues of class, anti-Semitism, race, they started to permeate this case. And this became particularly true when the New York Times took up the Leo Frank case and made it a cause. And day after day, the New York Times editorialized about it and wrote news stories that were pretty one-sided in Leo Frank's favor. Simultaneously, a weekly paper down in Georgia, the Jeffersonian, run by a former congressman named Tom Watson, 
took it upon itself to rebut the New York Times. And each week it pointed out what it called fallacies in the New York Times stories. It pointed out what it didn't call, but what it meant was the fake news of the mass media. And suddenly consensus was destabilized. No one knew what the truth was. There were competing sets of facts about the Frank case. And at the 11th hour, following the final appeal before the United States Supreme Court, the governor of Georgia commuted Frank's death sentence. And that so infuriated the people of Georgia that they supported this very daring raid on the state prison. And Frank was abducted and driven 100-plus miles through the dead of night on largely unpaved roads and lynched the next day. So this was a gigantic multi-car pile-up on the expressway of interest and crime and class and gender and race. It's it's all in there. Hmm. And that's why people still talk about it 105 years later. Hmm. So let's uh, try to pick out some of those things that you, that you, you just addressed. Um, uh, so on April 26, 1913, as you mentioned, Mary Fagan, on her way to the Confederate Day Parade, stopped by the pencil factory where she worked to pick up her wages. Take us through just that. What happened? As far as we know, what happened then? Well, imagine a Saturday in the South when Confederate Memorial Day was the most important, not symbolic, but actual ceremony about the lost cause. We're not talking about a debate over statues. Uh, We're talking about a time when the veterans were still alive and they marched down the street with brass bands playing and Confederate flags waving. And Mary was on her way to see this parade a ceremony of the lost cause. She stopped at the factory, which was a big industrial concern that manufactured hundreds of thousands of pencils every week and was really an example of the new industrial age, the new age of scientific management, the age of modernity. She stops in to get her wages and they were a pittance. She was a underpaid child laborer. She was 13 years old and She gets to the factory to get her wages. She goes to the office. Leo Frank is in the office. She knocks on the door. And according to Leo Frank, we'll never have her version, but according to Leo Frank, he opened the office safe, gave her a little packet of um, coins. Uh, People got paid uh, not by a check or not by a transfer, but actually in cash. And she walked away, and Frank said he never heard her or from her again, never heard her voice again. He went back to his work at the desk. She was found the next morning brutally beaten in the basement of the factory and strangled to death. And she was a white girl, and she was so badly beaten up that the responding police officers couldn't determine her race. She'd been dragged through coal dust and pencil shavings in the bottom of this pencil factory, and was completely smudged, and not until they pulled her stockings down could they determine that she was white. So this crime was volatile. It happened on the day of the ceremony for the lost cause, and it happened at a temple to the New Order, the New Industrial South, the New South. And there was Leo Frank, a Jewish northerner, sitting on top of this powder keg, and he was the last person to admit having seen the girl alive. So quite soon he was suspected of the crime. He also behaved somewhat 
suspiciously. He was very nervous. He uh, didn't want to see the body. Uh, he didn't want to go to the crime scene. Um, all of which is perfectly understandable. It was a horrific crime. Who'd want to go? Who'd want to see? But in the eyes of a white uh, Gentile police force in Atlanta, it was suspicious. He lacked that kind of uh, rough and ready character of, you know, a, a Southern male. He 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 didn't seem to. Um, he seemed like he had something to hide. So it, it became a. And I'll add one last element. Um, there was a Hearst newspaper in Atlanta at the time, the Atlanta Georgian, and the paper was staffed by a number of crack reporters, veterans from New York and Chicago, who'd just been waiting for a big story like this, and they played it with tremendous zeal and overplayed it. Uh, multiple extras every day, red banners atop the paper, and Atlanta, which was a big city but still a little sleepy, had never seen anything like it, and people got uh, revved up real fast. Now, I'm going to stay with that Hearst piece for just a moment because uh, you said a Hearst newspaper is William Randolph Hearst, uh, publisher, who is the architect of yellow journalism. So is this like the first time that yellow journalism makes a domestic appearance? I mean, about an issue about a domestic issue? It was not the first time. The uh, Hearst newspaper in New York, the New York Journal and the New York American, they played up local crime stories all the time. And it was the first time this had been seen in the South. The two daily papers in the South, the Atlanta Journal and the Atlanta Constitution, one in the evening, one in the morning, were much more reserved and polite. They were not um, driven by crime news, and they were, they were more part of the power structure of the South. Hearst didn't really care about any of that. Hearst cared about selling newspapers. His papers were the people's papers. And to give you an idea of the kind of treatment that Hearst gave to the Mary Fagan murder, they sent a photographer to the undertakers and took a picture of Mary Fagan's body lying on the slab in the undertaker's room and brought it back to the headquarters and cut and pasted it to a uh, photograph of a young woman curtsying and then place that on the front page of their first edition of the paper devoted to the case. So they published a picture of a dead girl on the front page of the paper. And, you know, today when images are manipulated so easily online, that doesn't sound too shocking. But in 1913, Atlantans had never seen this kind of duplicity, sophistication. It was an extraordinarily um, bold move, and it ratcheted up interest in the case and ratcheted up emotion about it. Hmm. Now, um, talk about the two notes that were found by Mary Fagan's body, and why, and why are they significant? Well, someone could write a thesis on these two notes. They are only a few words, several dozen words, but they are encoded with so much information about race and language and class, but found by Mary Fagan's body were these two notes that would come to be known as the murder notes. And I'll paraphrase. One said, ma'am, I write this while he play with me. That long, tall Negro did this by himself. And they were 
semi-grammatical, uh, no capitalization. One was dashed off on an order form from the National Pencil Company, one just on a piece of note paper. And they, if you took them at face value, they suggested that Mary Fagan wrote them herself as she was being assaulted, and she wrote them to point suspicion at a long, tall, black Negro. Notice the three adjectives, a long, tall, black Negro. So that's telling you that the killer was a big guy, and he was dark-skinned, and he was a black man. Well, the notes obviously weren't written by Mary Fagan. Uh, they weren't in her handwriting. They weren't in her, this was not her lexicon. They were a ruse of some sort. And the police initially had no idea what to make of them. No one had any idea what to make of them. Over a period of weeks, Jim Conley, the key witness against Leo Frank, would be arrested on suspicion because he was discovered in the factory shortly after the crime washing red stains out of a shirt. And after being examined by the police, he said that Leo Frank dictated those notes to him after the murder of Mary Fagan, had Jim Conley place the notes by Mary's body in order to point suspicion at a long, tall, black Negro. Now, Jim Conley was short, ginger-colored, and stocky. So the, note was, the notes were indicating someone who was physically very different than Jim Conley. And the police believed it, believed that Leo Frank would have concocted a ruse like this to point as an act of misdirection and never truly contemplated that Jim Conley, if he was a killer, had every reason to have done this himself. And Jim Conley added some other salient points that made this uh, sale. And the key one was that Leo Frank was what today would be called a sexual harasser and that he'd been harassing his nearly all-female workforce and that the murder of Mary Fagan was motivated by Frank's desire to seduce her, her resistance to his seduction. Frank got angry, killed her, and then asked Jim Conley, who'd been picking up pocket change by serving as Leo Frank's lookout during Frank's assignations, asked Jim Conley to help concoct a ruse and then get rid of the body. So that was the story that the police took to the district attorney. The district attorney took part of that story to a grand jury. Leo Frank was indicted and tried for Mary Fagan's murder. Based on perhaps some of the assumptions we hold today, when you, when you, when you think about this case, it seems tailor-made for the Southern mores of the time, a white girl married, you have a Negro suspect, case closed. How, and probably more importantly, why <coughs> did Leo Frank become ultra, eventually the primary suspect? A couple things happened in the teens in the South that were quite unusual. Over history, Race has always been a more important indicator of life in the South than class. Race trumped class. That's why poor whites would vote against their interests, because wealthy whites and poor whites shared 
racial domination over blacks. But in the teens, at the start of the industrial age in the South, there came to form an alliance between poor blacks and poor whites. And there came, if not an overt alliance, at least a tacit one. And there was a sense that Leo Frank, the Ivy League-educated Jewish Yankee, all those terms not um, compliments in the South of, of that time, that a light, Ivy League-educated Jewish Yankee would take advantage of a poor white working girl or a poor black janitor, and awakening in the minds of many white Southerners was the idea that they might have more in common with their black brothers and sisters than with a Jewish Ivy League-educated industrialist. Now, I'm, that was rarely articulated, but the man who really stirred the Frank case up and made it into the gigantic thing it became was his former congressman, Tom Watson, who was really the founder of an early rainbow coalition and was elected to Congress in the 1890s. Uh, he would tell racially mixed audiences, uh, you are kept apart so that you may be separately fleeced. And this terrified the white upper classes in the South. And Tom Watson saw the Frank case as proof positive of his theories, and he used his weekly newspaper, the Jeffersonian, not only to rebut the New York Times coverage of the case, but to advance this idea that, in this instance, the black key witness and the poor victimized working girl who was murdered had common ground. So, I mean, I mean, this is... Uh... This has everything. I mean, this, this, uh, you have racism, anti-Semitism, you have classism. I mean, you, you have the, the Southern mores being, put, being violated. This has everything you would want, you know, for, for some sort of TV special. I mean, in fact, it has been on television. If you're uh, just joining us, I'm speaking with writer Steve Oney, and we're discussing the case of Leo Frank. Oney is the author of several books, including And the Dead Shall Rise, The Murder of Mary Fagan and the lynching of Leo Frank. Now, now Steve, at the time of Frank's arrest, uh, you, you, sort, you sort of touched on it already, but about, I'm going to expand on it. Talk about the role of the press to really get people, just starting with the people in the, in the Atlanta area, to really get people following this. Because this, like you said, it ultimately became a class celeb, but what was that, that role? So you had the yellow journalism, you had Tom Watson's paper. You have the, the journal, the Constitution. I mean, how, what are their different perspectives on this? Well, initially, you know, the Frank case took a long time to play out, I must say, to start. More than two years from the day Mary Fagan was murdered to the day of Leo Frank's lynching. And it went all the way to the United States Supreme Court. So during that long period, the initial response by the press was pure sensation. The Hearst newspaper had no political stake in this. They were just trying to sell papers, and they would bombard the populace of Atlanta every day with 8, 10, 12 extra editions coming off the press every couple of hours, and they would play up the most sensational aspects of the case. They did not uh, really rely on race or class. I mean, they may have been 
a little reliant on class and that they were the people's paper. The Atlanta Journal and the Atlanta Constitution were conservative institutions of the power structure in the South. And initially, they underplayed this story. In their first copies devoted to the case, they only published one or two little news pieces. But as they saw the Hearst paper going to town on this, publishing five or six full pages about the case every day, they responded in kind. And a gigantic circulation war was ginned up, which saw by the time of the Leo Frank case, or the Leo Frank trial, saw the Atlanta Georgian, the Hearst paper, increase its publication or its circulation from about 20,000 to more than 100,000 a day just on the sheer interest in this case. So all three papers were in the, in, in the business of selling newspapers. That's what this was all about. After Frank was convicted, it became about something else. The rabbi from... Atlanta's Reform Synagogue, the Temple, David Marks, went to New York and eventually enlisted Adolph Ox of the New York Times to what Marks saw as an anti-Semitic prosecution, and he asked Ox to come in and investigate and look at the underpinnings of this case. Now, Adolph Ox was an interesting guy. He grew up in Tennessee he got his start in the newspaper business at the Chattanooga Times, which he owned, which their family still owns, and he felt he had an innate understanding of the South, and he devoted the full resources of the New York Times to covering the case. So during the appeals, which were largely in uh, 1914 and 19, early 1915, the New York Times would have a story every day about the case. And the stories were largely weighted in Leo Frank's favor. This was one of the few times the New York Times ever undertook advocacy journalism, and they were promoting a strong point of view. Well, in the South, in 1914 and 15, barely 50 years after the Civil War, this didn't go down too well. And it felt as if a big New York newspaper was meddling not just with their way of life, but their justice system. And Tom Watson, who had a week, weekly newspaper, and I mean W-E-A-K in the first use of that, uh, decided he was going to respond to the New York Times. And week after week, he rebutted it. And he indulged in the worst kind of anti-Semitic language. And he spoke of Leo Frank as a lecherous Jew. And ultimately, he called on the citizens of Georgia to lynch him. And the, it became a war, a war of words over what the reality of the Leo Frank case was. The New York Times and polite conversation in the Northeast and in other urban areas, most people there thought one thing. In the South, where a lot of people were reading the Jeffersonian, they thought something entirely different. So Watson was articulating the grievances of the working class in the South and the grievances of a society that had um, not recovered from uh, being a loser in this tragic war. Mm. So, so it's fair to say that, especially by early 1915, everyone in in that area had every, had an opinion one way or the other about the Leo Frank case. Yes, I would say that by 
early 1915, everyone in America had an opinion about the Leo Frank case because once the New York Times took it up, other big newspapers followed suit. Pulitzer's New York World, various monthly and weekly magazines, there were newsreel crews coming to Atlanta to shoot different parts of the city and principles in the case. There was a documentary film that played throughout New York uh, about the case. So, and, and there were fundraisers held in big American cities to raise money for Frank's defense. So it was a, it was a huge national cause celeb in which Georgia and the South were seen as oppressors of a poor Jew who was a stranger in a strange land and had been convicted of on trumped-up charges. Who was Hugh Dorsey, and what role did he play in this, in this trial? Hugh Dorsey was the prosecutor of Leo Frank. Uh, he would have been called then the Solicitor General, as county prosecutors were called in Georgia. And he marshaled the prosecution of Frank. He did an incredibly effective job, and he played on the class sentiment of the jurors and the and the audience. Frank's lead lawyers were part of the elite establishment of law firms of Atlanta, and they were very proper and Dorsey played against that. Dorsey presented himself as the people's attorney prosecuting a wealthy Jewish industrialist who was trying to get away with murder, and he played that very aggressively. Dorsey, I believe, truly thought Frank was guilty, however, so I don't think Dorsey, Dorsey was using all the tools of an aggressive prosecutor, but I don't think he was doing so cynically. I, he believed Leo Frank was guilty. Now, there were a number of suggestions that Mary Fagan was sexually assaulted, that Leo Frank was a sexual deviant of some sort. Talk about what Dorsey did at, toward the end of the trial period and, and the witness he called up at the very end. Leo Frank's lawyers made a terrific tactical error during the trial. As they presented Frank's defense, they introduced his character as one of the pillars of that defense. So they called to testify a number of Atlantans, mostly industrialists, a lot of them Jewish, to testify to Frank's good character. And Frank, in their telling, really did have an exemplary character. He belonged to the right clubs. He made the right social uh, moves or the right charitable donations. The error the defense made in calling these character witnesses is that it then allowed Hugh Dorsey, the prosecutor, to call rebuttal witnesses to say that Leo Frank had a very bad character. And Dorsey called a number of young women who worked at the pencil factory, most of them 13, 14 years old, to testify to Leo Frank's bad character. And there began to emerge a picture, and the picture had actually begun to emerge even earlier, of Leo Frank as not just a capitalist working these girls for profit, but as a sexual predator working them for his gratification. And this was an explosive idea to put out there in a courtroom. And Southern mothers and fathers who already felt 
angry that their children had been consigned to these lives working in factories, you know, were now completely undone by the idea that uh, this Cornell-educated industrialist was taking advantage of them sexually. So it was it was an explosive charge to bring. The defense brought it on it itself by making this error, and then the defense compounded the error by refusing to cross-examine any of these girls. So the girls' testimony to Frank's bad character stood unchallenged. Now, in hindsight, and even some people saw this at the moment, the girls' testimony as to Frank's bad character had a slight Salem witch trial hint to it. This was a moment of almost mass hysteria in which young girls were jumping on the bandwagon to testify to Leo Frank's bad character. And we never learned exactly what Leo Frank was purported to have done with them, but another key thing that happened in the trial that ratcheted up this notion was that when Jim Conley testified against Leo Frank, he testified quite explicitly about Leo Frank's sexual preferences and uh, he testified that Leo Frank was practicing oral sex with these girls, which in 1913 in Georgia was a felony crime of oral sodomy. And that was an explosive bit of testimony that in the minds of a lot of um, lower class, middle class, white jurors and white citizens amounted to a charge of perversion. So Leo Frank was only charged in truth with murder. But as the trial progressed, he stood accused of both murder and sexual perversion. And there was almost no way to defend against it. Now, was Connolly uh, coached in his testimony? Yes and no. He was certainly prepared for it. Connolly was a very cagey guy. And Connolly initially stayed out of the eyes of the law on this case by saying he could not write. And... It turned out that Conley had quite a bit of education and had learned how to read and write pretty damn well. And when the police discovered some of his other writings, notes and letters, he just shrugged his shoulders and, according to the newspapers, said, white folks, I'm a liar. So the Conley had learned to live in the margins and learned... Uh, like a lot of black people forced to survive in a hostile world to present some degree of mystery and fabrication about who he was. And he, he was a hard witness for the defense to handle. And they resorted to pretty much out-and-out racism in an attempt to defeat his testimony. Now, I understood that there were, though there were some contradictions in Connolly's story, is it accurate that the attorney who had sort of prepped him, I don't know if, it, I don't know if it's accurate to say his attorney, but the attorney who, who had prepped him come to believe that Connolly was indeed the malefactor? Yes, that's one of the very dramatic elements of the Leo Frank case and my book, And the Dead Shall Rise, I make this attorney's change of mind the pivot point of the book. Uh, his name was William Smith. He was a white guy, and 
he handled a lot of black defendants in all the courts of Atlanta, and he became Jim Conley's defense lawyer and believed that Jim Conley was telling the truth. And he supported Conley. He bought Conley a new suit of clothes, got him cleaned up, and not just physically cleaned up for his time on the witness stand, but worked with him on grammar, presentation, elocution. Uh, Conley was already a smart guy, but he came to the witness stand as a far more sophisticated witness than the defense lawyers were suspecting. And after Leo Frank was convicted, this lawyer, William Smith, came to slowly suspect that he had been played by Jim Conley. And he set about studying the case, and he collected every bit of Jim Conley's writings that he could find, and all of Jim Conley's testimony, the complete court record of Conley's testimony, and also places where Conley had testified in other cases. And he got it all out and made a, uh, his kitchen at his home into a laboratory and compared all of Conley's written and oral utterances to the murder notes. And he found that the lexicon, the slang, the structure of the murder notes fit almost word for word with everything else that Jim Conley had ever written or said. Jim Conley, for instance, loved compound adjectives. So long, tall, black. This lawyer went back and looked at all of Jim Conley's previous utterances and writings and found that again and again, Conley used compound adjectives when sort of easing into a noun. And it was a pretty sophisticated study to be done in a lawyer's kitchen in Atlanta in 1914. But it convinced this lawyer, William Smith, that Jim Conley had not only played him, but that Jim Conley had played the whole court and that Jim Conley was the author of those murder notes. Those murder notes were his intellectual property. He had not just served as Frank's transcriptionist. He had written these notes, and he'd written the notes to cover up his own crime, and that Leo Frank had nothing to do with the notes. And this lawyer, Smith, tried to get Hugh Dorsey, the prosecutor, to consider his point of view. Dorsey said, we're way too far down the road, and Smith went to the newspapers with his story, and it was gigantic news, as you might imagine, and a lot of lawyers felt that Smith had betrayed lawyer-client confidentiality. Smith felt that he had not because Conley had already been sentenced as an accessory after the fact. His professional obligation, he felt, was done, but not everyone bought it. In fact, the New York Times Magazine did a long piece interviewing different law professors around the country, and about half of them sided with Smith and half of them were against him. But Smith then devoted the rest of his of Leo Frank's life to trying to exonerate Frank and to lay this crime on his former client, Jim Conley. And it was a morally very ambiguous position for Smith to try to inhabit, and it was also just dangerous, death threats, and because the case had turned into a it, it had turned into a lightning rod, and people were bringing all sorts of emotions and fears to it, and it was impossible to have a neutral feeling about Leo Frank by this point. 
Now, by the time of the verdict, at least according to the judge, it was pretty much established that Leo Frank was going to be receive a guilty verdict, and the judge asked that he not be in the courtroom when that, ver- when that verdict was handed down. The mob outside, did that influence the actual death sentence, per se? I don't think it influenced the death sentence. In the Georgia courts at that time, the jury convicted and the judge assigned the penalty. So the judge, Leonard Roan, decreed a death penalty on Frank. But I do think the mob had an influence on the jury. The current Atlanta Fulton County Courthouse was under construction at the time of this case, and the trial was held in small quarters in a old municipal building in the city. And not only were these quarters inadequate, but uh, they opened up onto the streets, and there were hundreds, sometimes thousands of people standing out in the street pressing to get like not the knothole gangs at a baseball game of that time, pressing to get a view through the windows, and you could hear them chanting and cheering, and the jury could not help but be aware of this. When Frank's conviction was handed down by the jurors, Hugh Dorsey was bodily picked up by the crowd, like the winning coach in a SEC football game, and carried from the courtroom to his car without his feet ever touching the ground. And there was a strong sensation throughout the city that Leo Frank had gotten exactly what he deserved and that Hugh Dorsey was the heroic figure who had brought justice to this forgotten little factory girl, Mary Fagan, and he had brought this justice through the unusual instrument of a black witness, Jim Conley. So... You had the poor white working girl, the noble solicitor general, and unusual for that time in the South, a black witness who carried the day. And Leo Frank, the Jewish industrialist, was sentenced to die, and then the appeals started. But there was a, there was a cord in Atlanta that they'd gotten the right man, and the right man would pay the ultimate penalty for this terrible crime. And you talked about the appeal. So this, this, this case goes all the way to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court, I believe, was 7-2, decided that there was no violation of due process. Is, is that accurate? Yes. And now this brings us to Governor Frank Slayton. Talk about his role. It was <clears throat> John Slayton. I mean, John and, Slayton, I'm sorry. Uh, that's all right. And he, John Slayton was a very sophisticated, progressive southerner married into money. His brother was the superintendent of Atlanta schools. And John Slayton, after the Supreme Court turned down Frank's final appeal, and after the pardon and parole boards in Georgia turned down Frank's appeal to them, John Slayton held hearings on the case. He examined witnesses. He went to the factory, looked around, and he consulted with William Smith, Jim Conley's former lawyer, and Slayton came to the conclusion that this was a miscarriage of justice, that tempers were overwrought. Frank's lawyers did not ask Slayton to pardon him. They asked for a commutation. By this point, they knew that a pardon was politically impossible in Georgia at that time. So they sought a commutation. At the 11th hour, Slayton commuted the sentence 
right before Frank was set to be executed, right before the end of Slayton's term. Now, Slayton is portrayed in history as a brave person, and he really was. This was not in Slayton's best interest to commute Frank's sentence, and it ruined Slayton's political career. Slayton would never again hold statewide elective office in Georgia. And all that said, Slayton had a terrible conflict of interest. Slayton was a law partner with Luther Rosser, whose name we haven't mentioned, but Rosser was Frank's lead attorney. So a purist would say Slayton should have recused himself from this case, but in 1915 in Georgia, the Georgia bar was small. The in Slayton's term was ending as governor. The incoming governor, a guy named Nat Harris, had let it be known that he would allow the execution of Leo Frank to proceed. Slayton felt he had to make a moral decision. And yes, he made a decision in the interest of his class, which was the ruling elite of Atlanta, but I'm convinced he made a decision of conscience. Anyway, he commuted Frank's sentence, and the commutation... Frank was transported secretly in the middle of the night. This is how volatile the case had become from Atlanta, from the Fulton County Jail in Atlanta, where he'd been serving time during the appeals process, down to Milledgeville, Georgia, in the heart of the state, where the state prison was. The next morning, Atlantans awakened to learn that the sentence was commuted and Frank was gone. And the city went berserk. And it was much like what happened in Washington on January 6th. A huge mob flowed into the state capitol, ran roughshod through the chambers where the Senate met, broke into Slayton's office. Slayton had not come in because he'd worked all night getting the commutation order written. And the crowd then milled around the courthouse. There were altercations with the police. Some of the police were sympathizing with the crowd. In fact, one police officer slugged the chief of police in the face. There was mayhem on the streets. And around dusk, about 4,000 remaining members of this mob decided they were going to march from downtown Atlanta out to Slayton's house, which is in, was in Buckhead, six miles due north on Peachtree Street. And the mob set out, breaking into hardware stores to steal guns, grabbing bricks and two-by-fours from construction sites along the way, and Slayton had enough advance notice six miles walking away that he summoned the National Guard, and the National Guard was just assembling outside his house when the mob arrived, and they forced the mob back down the street. Um, And that was in June of 1915, and Frank was lynched in August of 1915. So the plans to abduct Frank from the state prison and hang him started being made shortly after this march on Slayton's house. In a few minutes we have left, talk about the impact after Frank had been lynched. What was the impact that the Leo Frank case had going forward on the Jewish community, particularly in, in, in the Atlanta area? Well, Atlanta Jews had always been part of the elite in Georgia, and there were a lot of original Atlanta Jews whose grandfathers had fought for the Confederacy. They were, it was an assimilated uh, reformed Jewish community that had not been enriched by the 
big immigration of Russian and Eastern European Jews who were flowing into New York and northern cities by the teens. Uh, it was a pretty, pretty much a German-Jewish assimilated community in Atlanta, and Frank's lynching stunned this group and sent it into kind of a denial, a tailspin. The rabbi of the main reform synagogue, David Marks, was deeply unsettled by this, and he began to urge his congregation to stop publicly revealing their Jewishness. So he immediately stopped using the chuppah in wedding ceremonies, and there was a era, a feeling of repression and denial about their Judaism. Uh, within a week and a half after the lynching, uh, about a hundred Atlanta Jews got together and had a vote about what to do. There was obviously going to be no statewide investigation into the lynching. The people who planned the lynching were extremely powerful. They had to be because they abducted the most famous prisoner in America from a state prison, not from a county jail. And once the grand jury in the county where the lynching took place gave a no bill saying they had didn't have enough evidence to prosecute anyone in the case, there was, you know, the sense that there would be no justice. And there was no real FBI then. There was a fledgling precursor to the FBI. There were no civil rights statutes, no federal laws for taking a look at something like this. And so there was a move among some Jews to have a independent investigation. But these hundred influential Atlanta Jews got together and said, no investigation. This stops here. We're dropping this. And the reason they made this decision was twofold. One, they were scared. And two, they were scared because they knew that this crime had been tacitly and actually approved by powerful people with whom they interacted every day. And that to try to get into this would put them all at risk. And in my book, I document a lot of the letters back and forth and the the, the fear that Atlanta's Jews were feeling as a, as a religion, as a faith. And now most of Atlanta's Jews stayed, very few left. There are some reports saying that many Jews left, but very few Jews really packed up and left the South. This was their home. And they just chose to live with this violent crime. It was an accommodation. I mean, black Southerners lived with the same kind of accommodation. There were 22 lynchings in Georgia in 1915. Leo Frank was the only white lynching victim, so 21 black lynching victims. Blacks, yes, some left in the Great Migration to Detroit and the mid Chicago and the Midwest, but it, this was their home, and, and they lived with it. Hmm. And they would live with it for the next 50 years. And John Ossoff's election to the Senate this year is kind of a symbolic end of that period. Um, and I'm not saying people in Atlanta today or yesterday or 10 years ago went around thinking about Leo Frank. Most young people don't know anything about it. But the Leo Frank lynching was a bedrock, terrifying experience for the Jewish community in Atlanta. So on some subconscious level, it's always been there ever since. 
Steve Oney, I want to thank you for joining me today on The Public Morality. Much appreciated. And I don't think the story of Leo Frank has reached an end yet. (laughs) (laughs) No, it probably hasn't reached an end. I'm frightened to say that if we can have a United States congresswoman right now going around talking about a Jewish laser beam starting the California wildfires, the Leo Frank case has not ended. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you receive your podcasts. Once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WJAB in Huntsville, Alabama, for allowing us to broadcast the public morality at their studios. The Public Morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. In the words of Martin Luther King, we may have come on different ships, but we're in the same boat now. For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams. (laughs) ¶¶